Little honey bees flying around, little green peas from the ground, buttermilk biscuits nice and brown. Bring it to Tennessee farm table, butter beans, peas, beets and chard, chickens running in the yard, catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Dripping black gang candy stripes. Look at 'em loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee Farm Table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that is dedicated to the people of the state of Tennessee who produce, prepare, and preserve food and agriculture, often with that Mountain South Appalachian flair. And on occasion, I just might have a guest from our neighbors from surrounding states here in the Southeast. This is your hostess and producer, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. She's from Madisonville, Tennessee. Today, we are setting the table with salt. We visit with our neighbor from West Virginia, Nancy Bruins of J.Q. Dickinson Salt Works. We'll hear about her family's land, history, and how they produce salt from their family farm. Nancy and her brother, Louis Payne, are partners in our seventh-generation salt makers since 1832 to produce this agricultural product from their family's land. Nancy spent 25 years in the food industry before becoming a salt maker, and this company is an important component to the West Virginia Sustainable Food System community. There is a 400-million-year-old ocean that lies beneath West Virginia, the Iapetus Ocean, some people pronounce it Iapetus Ocean, and this ocean predates the Atlantic Ocean and it lies beneath the Appalachian Mountains. During the 17 and 1800s, the state of West Virginia had a thriving salt industry, and at one time, the Kanawha Valley was the largest salt-producing region in the country. This salt that we are featuring today is sourced from the brine of this ancient aquifer. They harvest their all-natural salt by hand on their family's 200-acre farm in Malden, West Virginia. Their salt is free of contaminants and heavy metals that might be found in other salts from other oceans. And the salt is processed naturally using the power of the sun and mountain air. I recorded this in 2015 at an Appalachian Food Summit. And uh, let's hear Nancy Bruins talk about her salt works. It's going to be another incredible story. Okay. I have a little uh, presentation here, but I am uh, Nancy Bruns, and I am a seventh-generation salt maker. Wow. So um, my company, J.Q. Dickinson Salt Works, was started in 2013, but uh, we're going to start with a little history of the the salt industry in the Canal Valley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So as, as Ronnie mentioned, the Iapetus Ocean is underneath us here, and uh, the Native Americans followed um, the animals, and to where I come from is Buffalo Lick, um, <laughs> near Malden, West Virginia, which is just east of Charleston, along the Canal River. Um, and it ranges in depth from 300 feet to 1,700 feet. Um, it was bubbling up in a few places, um, so that's how the animals found it, but mostly they had to, to drill for it. And um, this uh, is just a, a little sign in Malden that talks about it, but there was a lot of um, ingenuity in, in the valley. Uh, the first commercial salt maker started in 1798, and he was just taking buckets of brine and boiling it down. Um, as they saw the value and the frontier was moving farther west, um, people like my family came in, the Ruffner family, Shrewsbury family, moved into the area and saw real value. They started to go deeper because the brine was richer. They took um, sycamore trees hollowed out that they would drive into the ground. They put a man down in them with a bucket and a shovel and dig and dig and dig and keep driving that huge tree into the ground to case it. And that's how my family drilled its first well. Um, they became uh, a little more technically savvy and the Ruffner family developed uh, modern drilling techniques that were actually dr used to drill the first oil well in Titusville, um, Pennsylvania. So um, they, they soon didn't have to drive those sycamore trees in the ground. Um, so Malden grew into the largest salt producing region of the country in the 1830s and 40s. There were over 50 producers and 100 wells were drilled in the area. It was, you know, in about a 10 mile stretch. They deforested the area, um, stoking huge furnaces with timber, and then they uh, found how rich the area was with coal reserves, and so they were stoking, stoking coal furnaces to boil down the brine and were making thousands of pounds of salt a day. They were sending it to um, Cincinnati, to the meat packing industry there. Cincinnati was known as Porkopolis. So the Canal River runs to the Ohio, which runs to Cincinnati. Um, they would take flat boats full of salt, uh, take the salt off, sell it, take their flat boats apart, sell the, sell the wood, get themselves back, and make the trip again. So my family was the longest producer in the valley. We made salt until 1945. Um, it was a huge industrial operation. They not only made salt for curing, uh, they made salt for um, agricultural uses, um, industrial uses, uh, they made salt for um, keeping uh, road dust down, you know, before asphalt. Um, cheese making had special salts for and butter and they had about 12 different varieties. Also the chemical industry in the Kanawha Valley grew up because of the salt industry. Uh, the salt uh, resource there, the chlorides and other, other minerals that were able to be extracted from the brine. So they stopped in 1945 because refrigeration was pretty common in every house by then and there was just no, no economy for it. The, you know, the meatpacking industry had moved to Chicago. And um, so in my lifetime, I was born in the 60s, I didn't really know about this. I knew that we made salt, but it wasn't a part of my everyday, everyday knowledge. So um, I started to learn more about my history once I uh, sold my restaurant in, in 2008 and my husband went back to school, got
got his master's degree in American history. He started studying salt. He's been very interested in salt as a commodity through history and how that has changed societies and cultures. And so he dug up the Dickinson family pretty quickly, and he's like, do you know about your family? Um, a little bit. <laughs> so, um, so it just, you know, I had one of these aha moments. Our family still had this land. Um, I've been in the food industry for 25 years. I, you know, I kind of had my finger on the pulse, what was going on. I was watching more, uh, more media around salts. I, I had a whole cabinet in my kitchen that was pushing other things out. It was full of salt. So I was obviously teaching myself and learning that there is a difference in salt. Salt is not just salt. And um, also the, the push of consumers and chefs who really want to source quality foods, not from Europe or Asia so much as right here at home. And so I just said, you know, I, I can't not make salt. We need to do this. So um, I called my brother and said, I've got this idea. It's going to sound crazy, but don't say no yet. And so um, we started making salt. So um, we wanted to make it a very sustainable industry and something that, you know, could last and not have the environmental impact that our ancestors had on the, on the, on the environment using all that timber and that coal and polluting the environment. So we chose uh, about the slowest way possible to harvest salt. <laughs> and I'm sure they're looking down on me saying, Nancy, there's a faster way. But uh, we think it's the right way. We think of our salt as an agricultural product. It's something that comes from the land, and it's something that is ripened, so to speak, by Mother Nature. Uh, we are very reliant on the sun, and then we harvest it when it's, when it's ready. So we use um, solar, solar energy. This is one of our sun houses. Um, we fill up these big beds with our brine and um, let it evaporate, and then we move it to, to crystallization. It takes about five weeks from start to finish, and it's very fastest. We use a uh, high-density polyethylene. Um, it's stable at high temperatures, and then um, we harvest it. It makes um, these beautiful crystals, and um, there we are harvesting. We use wood, wooden rakes and scoops. Uh, we want things that are non-reactive with the salt and then um, we let it dry and we clean it, dry it, and uh, package it. We do grind crystals that are too big. We are um, trying to be 100% no waste, so everything that we take from the ground we want to be using. Um, we have several byproducts. One of them is Nagari, which I didn't really know a whole lot about. This is an adventure. I feel like I jump from one learning curve to another every day practically. but. Um, after we harvest those salt crystals, there's a liquid that remains that does not evaporate anymore. It's called nagari, and it's the, um, the liquid minerals that don't adhere to the salt crystals, and it's traditionally used to make tofu, but you can also use it to make fresh cheese. You, it's a natural coagulant. I love tofu. I don't love tofu, actually. The chef in me kept thinking, you know, there's gotta be more to this, so I just <laughs> heat, heated up some raw milk I found at our farmer's market, and um, like, what the heck, let's just see what happens. So I put some in there and made beautiful fresh ricotta cheese. I thought, now we're talking, <laughs> now we're talking. So um, it makes beautiful fresh goat's cheese too and you get all those great minerals. So we're using, we're selling that to chefs and consumers. Those are our uh, products. 
Um, another important part of our um, being an Appalachian business and being in a state that is severely depressed right now because of the coal industry, it was very important to us to partner as closely as we could with our neighbors and other artisans. So we work uh, with about five or six different artisans for um, our salt cellars and scoops and um, containers. We also look um, at home first for anything we need. Our lids for our jars are made in Wheeling, West Virginia. Our glass comes from Kentucky. Um, we do all our printing locally. We have our graphic designer was local. Uh, we want to keep as much in Appalachia as we can, and it's very important to us. And we do pay a little more for that, but we think it's important to keep those dollars at home. And um, and we get, you know, we develop these great relationships with people, and it's it's important to us to to be a part of that local economy, and that's part of being a sustainable business. But um, there we are. So this is our farm. Um, that my family has owned this piece of property since 1832, and we do have a few cattle there, some Delta Galloways that somebody else takes care of, but we get to enjoy them. And um, so we have uh, the old salt works around the property as well, and we have an old salt office that has a lot of um, the relics of the family, all of the paperwork back to um, <coughs> the early 1800s and all the employee records and all that. So we're, we're actually working on making <coughs> a salt museum that um, can be a real asset for the community. So, uh, But we do have about 180 different wholesale accounts, wholesale and retail accounts. We work with a lot of chefs and consumers. We sell retail and we're, we're growing. We're almost in the black, <laughs> which we think is pretty good. We're only two and a half years in. We have quadrupled our capacity, and um, but I think it's it's an important. The more I've I've been involved with it, the more I see the importance of not only what we're doing, but taking a step in a different direction outside the box in Appalachia, and taking reviving, taking this old industry, and I'm right there with all my seven generations of ancestors but doing it a totally different way. And I think that if we can continue doing that with a lot of other industries, that maybe there we can get some momentum going. Anyway, that's my You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, and we have just heard from Nancy Bruins, salt maker of J.Q. Dickinson Salt Works, and our neighbor to West Virginia. Nancy and her brother, Louis Payne, are partners at J.C. Dickinson Salt Works. They are seventh-generation salt makers. They've been producing salt from their land, from their family's farm, since 1832. As always, I've placed a link to J.Q. Dickinson Salt Works on my website, TennesseeFarmTable.com, with the podcast and podcast notes. And up next is a new contributor to the show, Lisa Rowland from Food History 360. She lives in Johnson City, and today she is going to share a segment with us about turkey craw beans. Hi, I'm Lisa Rowland from Food History 360. I love food folklore, and Appalachia abounds with stories that braid history and tall tales into charming, if not scrappy, short stories. 
Turkey craw beans are part of the local food history. They are an heirloom bean grown in Upper East Tennessee, southeastern Virginia, western North Carolina, and southeastern Kentucky. The story tells of an African-American who found the bean in the craw of his hunted turkey and later planted it. For those new to turkey parts, a craw or a crop is a biological pouch which is used by turkeys as a pre-digestive storage area. The bean that was found in the craw turned out to be rather fat and tasty. It's a pole bean. And in this region, they're used to make leather britches, a type of dried bean, one of several preservation methods to extend the shelf life of fresh food into the winter months. Leather britches are a traditional mountain method of preservation. The beans are strung whole, still in their pods or jackets, on thread, and hung in the rafters to dry to a leathery consistency, hence the name leather britches. When fully dried, they were stored in bags, jars being an expensive luxury back then. When ready to eat, they were reconstituted with a long cooking that results in alchemy. The beans are transformed into a wonderful deliciousness that can only be experienced. Most folks have not heard of this method of preservation, but oddly, this was a familiar sight to me when I moved here. And here is where food history has always connected me to place. I spent many summers in Switzerland where prized beans were air-dried. Northern Germans dry beans like this as well. They're called Uptrug beans. You can buy them in grocery stores, already dried. When I first arrived in Appalachia, I was surprised to find so many Swiss-German food references. And after scratching the surface of the local history, I discovered that many of the earliest settlers were northern German from Friesland, and a substantial Swiss migration happened a little bit later, giving us towns like Grotli Lager and Little Switzerland. They settled in Appalachia because the mountains and that way of life were familiar to them. It's likely that they brought this tradition from the old country. While this area claims a Scotch-Irish heritage, by scratching the surface and looking at the foodways, you can tease out the nuances of another culture. You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, and we have just heard from Lisa Rowland of Food History 360. There's still time to grow out some good beans in your garden this season, and the seed for turkey crawl bean that Lisa referenced can be found from a few places that deal with heirloom seed. One place is out of Asheville, North Carolina, called So True Seed. You can connect with Lisa through Instagram at Food History 360, and I've also placed a link to her Instagram page and a link to So True Seed and a link to our next guest, Seed Saver John Korkendall, on my website with all the podcast notes. Since we're on the topic of old heirloom seeds, here's a recording I made with Tennessee seed saver John Koykendall about two gourds, the Tennessee spinning gourd and the nest egg gourd. Both are heirloom varieties and can be found from a variety of places that deal with these heirloom seeds. And I know So True Seed carries the Tennessee spinning gourd, and I have a bunch of the nest egg gourd seed that I originally got from a lady from a seed swap. And uh, get in touch with me for details if you'd like to get some of these seeds. 
I can handle getting a few of them out if, you know, if I'm not just bombarded. I've put pictures holding these nest egg gourds and these adorable Tennessee spinning gourds on my website if you want to get a good look at them. Seed saver John Koykendall makes his home in East Tennessee, and he has a book, Preserving Our Roots, My Journey to Save Seeds and Stories. It was written by him and Christina Melton, who handles special projects for PBS in Louisiana. This book is full of seed-saving memories and drawings that John himself has drawn and stories. So let's hear John talk about these two old-time gourds. These were commonly used years and years ago when the children would be sent out to the barn to collect the eggs. They would take them off the nest and they'd usually have a basket with these to go with it. So when they'd take the eggs off, they'd put three or four of these back on the nest. You see, they look just like hen's eggs. They do. They look and feel the same. In fact, they fool people a lot of times. So those were commonly used. I'm glad to know. Nothing was grown as a decoration back then. No such thing as a cute little ornament. It had a use or they didn't grow it. That's right. So even like your spinning gourds that children played with, all that is is a small gourd with a stem on it about so long. And you take your fingers and snap that, and then it spins like a top on the floor. But everything had some kind of purpose or use. Was that before Nintendo and all that? Way before. But you know, children today, when they see those spinning gourds, they're fascinated. They'll get down on the floor and play with those things for hours. They love them. I know it. Takes imagination. It does. Well, John Coykendall, you just talked to us about... Spinning gourds and nest egg gourds. I thank you. You are sure welcome. Look at that. And you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. You just heard from seed saver John Koykendall. And today in East Tennessee is the opening day of the Sevierville Farmer's Market in downtown Sevierville. Here's Bo Branton, who handles their social media and marketing with some details. So, Bo, we are talking today about the Sevierville Farmer's Market. Now, your opening day is this weekend is that right that's right yes our opening day is this saturday uh, may 22nd and we plan on hosting it from 9 to 1 p.m 9 until 1 p.m okay so severeville farmers market where's the location uh, we're located at 138 bruce street it's it's right there at the severeville commons uh, you can't miss it uh, you just pass the courthouse and we're right there and you can see that courthouse for miles absolutely and the dolly parton statue well, that's enough to go just to see the Dolly Parton statue, if you ask me. <laughs> that's right, yeah. <laughs> well, and so what kind of vendors will be at this market? So we're looking to have local farmers, local crafters, and local artisans. Uh, we're going to have about 70% farmers, and the rest are going to be our local crafters and artisans. So. Everybody worries about too many crafters and not enough farmers, so you've got a nice mix there. The goal is to give people in East Tennessee the most fresh produce that, that they can get, so... So if people want to find out more information, where should people look for information about this market? Sure. You can find us on Instagram at Sevierville Farmers Market as well as Facebook at the downtown Sevierville Farmers Market. Sounds good. Bo Branton talking about the Sevierville Farmers Market, which opens today in those hours again, 9 o'clock. 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. 9 to 1. Okay. Thank you, Bo. Yeah, no problem.
And now it is time for the gospel portion of our radio broadcast. We like to call this our daily bread. And here is the seldom seen from the 20th anniversary concert live recording with House of Gold on the Tennessee Farm Table. The people steal, they cheat and lie for wealth and what people will buy. Well, don't they know on the judgment day that the gold and silver? I'd rather be in a deep dark grave And to know that my poor soul was saved And to live in this world in a house of gold And deny my God and do my soul Ben went to sleep at the switch over there. There's another five minutes you got to kill here, John. Can we think of any more gross stories to tell? <laughs> Let me think. Oh, no, wait a minute. Forget I, I said that. brought a few with me. No, no, no. 
Why? Is this going to be another gospel song? Yeah, it's going to be another gospel song. Mm, good. Let's see. This isn't a gospel tune. Oh. Oh, it's not? No. Oh, this is a semi-sacred tune. That's right. No, it's not even pseudo. <laughs> Whatever it is, we'll try. This is just a kind of a tragic romance of life. Not bad. <laughs> All right. Just a picture from life. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee, for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song, for updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording. Connect with Emmy Sunshine at theemmysunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production.